0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the book of Acts. Our text is Acts 8, 1-24. The story of Stephen's witness to Christ and resulting death served several purposes for Luke. Theologically, the story challenges the worship and practice of Orthodox Judaism to yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and accept in him the fulfillment of the Old Covenant and inauguration of the New Covenant. Literarily, Stephen's story serves as an overlapping transition from the first major division of Acts to the second major division of Acts, moving from a description of the church's growth in Jerusalem to a description of the spread of the church into Judea and Samaria. Historically, Stephen's story is our story. His conviction, his courage His hope that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that truth and character displayed in his story is part of our heritage as Christians. He is our Stephen. Also, historically, his story is a pivotal moment. Before Stephen's trial, the authorities in Jerusalem restrained themselves from the use of force against the growing Christian movement. At the conclusion of Stephen's trial, violence— Is unleashed. Believers in Jesus were lighting a fire in Jerusalem, a large bonfire full of warmth and light, calling all who believed to gather around in fellowship and worship. Outside that community gathered around the light, there were thousands looking in, many attracted by what they saw, by the fellowship and the miracles and the message. Others stood outside with judgment, disapproval, jealousy, and hatred. The trial of Stephen unleashed that hatred. The leaders of Jerusalem took advantage of the moment to continue the violence. They marched in with strong boots to stamp out the blazing fire. And in kicking out that fire, embers were launched into the surrounding region. Would those embers fall on damp, rocky soil, only to lose their light and warmth with no effect? No, the surrounding countryside will catch fire as believers are forced out from Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, the coastal cities, Galilee, even as far north as Antioch, persecuted Christians will spread the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. We begin here with the awakening of Samaria. We can divide Acts 8, 1-24 into three sections. We start with an introduction, then we read about Philip's fruitful witness in Samaria, and then we read about Peter's apostolic affirmation that God is indeed at work in Samaria. Rather than read the whole text through at once, we'll address these three sections individually, starting with the introduction in Acts 8, 1-3. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Luke gives us more information about Saul. That's his Hebrew name. We find out in the letter to the Philippians that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that produced the famous King Saul that came before King David. And maybe he's named after the king or some other relative. It's an honored name in the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is not a new name that Saul will receive. Paul is his Greek name. This is not a new name with a new meaning like the one Peter got. This is like my friend Viljana, who goes by BB when she's in the States so that Americans can pronounce her name. Paul works better for Greek speakers. Luke will start calling Saul Paul when the Gentile ministry gets fully underway. Since we know him as Paul, I'll start referring to him as Paul. Paul now. I might flip back and forth between Saul and Paul. Luke mentioned Paul at the end of chapter 7. He's giving us more information about Paul now. Introducing us, like like he does, to Paul before Paul's story truly gets underway. Paul is not simply one major figure of Acts that's being introduced here. Paul is the primary human figure in the story of Acts. If Acts were a novel or a play, we would say that Paul's the hero of the story. Similar to how Moses is the primary human figure in the book of Exodus. Of course, God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are the main focus of this story. But as far as human beings go, this is very much a story about Paul. One of the main purposes of Acts is the defense of Paul, which at the same time, and more importantly, is a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ promoted by Paul. The gospel of Jesus is a gospel of changed lives. That's no more clearly displayed than in the life of Saul the Hebrew of Hebrews, who would come to be known exclusively by his Greek name because of his ministry to the Gentiles. But first we meet Paul watching over the robes of Stephen's executioners, which they removed so that they might better throw the stones that crushed Stephen to death. This is not an origin story of repentance or self-doubt or the big revulsion at an unjust evil being carried out before his eyes. This is not the moment that Paul softens or begins to empathize. Luke tells us, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. He watched with righteous indignation. He watched as a protector of Israel, as a defender of the faith. Not only did he completely reject Stephen's gospel message, but he fully agreed with the sentence of death and the immediate execution of that sentence. He had no qualms about the shift from formal trial to mob attack. This was righteous in his eyes. Paul was in hearty agreement. In the death of Stephen, Paul sees clearly his calling from God to lead in the eradication of this cancerous Christian tumor growing in the heart of Israel. He begins to ravish the church. That's a violent word. He enters into the private space of people's homes, knocking on doors, as we might imagine from the KGB or the Gestapo. With the approval of the government, and certainly also with temple soldiers backing him up, Saul dragged Christian mothers and fathers from their homes, from their children, to lock them in prison. We can imagine that he would have done worse if the Roman authorities allowed the Sanhedrin to execute Christians. But apart from blasphemy in the temple, the quick execution of Stephen is an exception to the rule, so the worst Paul could do is drag these believers into prison. Along with giving us more introduction to Paul, these verses also introduce us to the persecution that followed Stephen's death. As some believers are imprisoned, others flee Jerusalem, being scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. We don't know why, but the apostles chose to remain in Jerusalem and somehow, by the will of God, escaped imprisonment. That's a story I'd love to hear. You know, why did they stay? How, did, how were they allowed to stay? I've heard it preached that the apostles show a reluctance to embark on the mission to Samaria and the Gentiles, and that's why the persecution was necessary. It's true they still don't seem to get the implication of Jesus' command to go to the remotest part of the earth. They're going to need some help in understanding the full inclusion of Gentiles. But I don't think we can say that staying in Jerusalem is a sign of disobedience. I don't think we can say that because I don't see it clearly in the text. And we're going to see Peter venturing out and traveling around, witnessing for Christ. But at this moment, I see more courage than reluctance. They're all known. Certainly they're in more danger in Jerusalem than anyone else. Yet they stay to continue on as witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem, and as leaders of the growing church centered there. Stephen is buried, and devout men lament over him. Just as one Joseph and Nicodemus buried Jesus, these men publicly identify with Stephen, even at risk of their own reputation and safety. It's one more instance where we see the comparison made between Stephen and his Lord. Stephen is like his Lord. And it takes us back to those dark days of uncertainty for Christ followers in Jerusalem after the crucifixion. I imagine many Christian Jews left Jerusalem at this time to return to their homes or, or to the homes of relatives. The gospel spread out into different communities as regular everyday believers continued living life, but now in a, in a new place outside of Jerusalem. Some of the believers who left Jerusalem went with a sense of calling. They left with, with ministry in mind, as evangelists and missionaries. And let me make a a technical point of how I'm going to use the word missionary through our series of Acts. I'm I'm using missionary to mean someone who is making disciples cross-culturally, and that's essential. You're not doing missions if you're uh, sharing the good news with somebody who's from your same culture. You're being an evangelist. Not all Christians are called to be missionaries, not in that sense. It doesn't mean that all Christians have to go a long way off. If you live beside somebody who's from a different culture, or you're engaging at work with people who are of a different culture, and you you witness, you try to share the gospel with them, then you're doing the work of a missionary. The missionary does not necessarily have to cross geographic distance, but a missionary is always one who is crossing cultural distance. Philip is an evangelist and a missionary. He's one of the embers launched out by the stamping feet of persecution. He does not go far geographically. It's only 20 miles, maybe 30 kilometers uh, to the city of Samaria where he is, but he's traveled some distance culturally. He's gone from Judea to Samaria. Samaritans do share some cultural similarities with their Jewish cousins, but also significant differences in ethnicity and language and religion and history. So Philip lands in Samaria in a new place culturally. Will the gospel message fizzle out among these unorthodox people who accept some of the Bible but twist it around to fit their culture? Or will the gospel message light a fire? Acts 8, 4-13 describes for us Philip's ministry to the Samaritans. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, so that there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ— They were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Philip goes down to Samaria. Don't let that directional language confuse you. You may tend to think of down as south on a map and up as north. In Acts, whenever you leave Jerusalem, you're going down. Jerusalem is considered the center, and Jerusalem is located in a high mountain range, so you always go down from Jerusalem and up to Jerusalem. Philip was one of the seven men chosen, along with Stephen, to assist with the distribution of funds to the Greek-speaking Jewish widows in Jerusalem back in chapter 6. He was considered a man full of the Spirit and wisdom. Also like Stephen and the apostles, Philip was gifted by God to perform miraculous signs, casting out demons and healing the sick. Luke specifically mentions healing of the lame, which reminds us of the miracle performed by Peter in chapter 3. Philip's location is referred to as the city of Samaria. F.F. Bruce remarks that the most immediate assumption would be that Luke is referring to the city Samaria, rebuilt by Herod the Great and called Sebast. But that city was a Hellenistic city, whereas the ministry of Philip emphasizes work among true Samaritans. So Bruce thinks the city of Samaria referred to here is a town near Shechem in the region where Jesus had witness to the woman at the well. The ethnic divide between Jews and Samaritans began a long time before this, with the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 BC. The conquering Assyrians deported much of the Jewish population, and imported other conquered peoples. They intermarried, creating an ethnically diverse people related to the Jews. About 200 years later, when Ezra and Nehemiah returned to rebuild Jerusalem after the southern kingdoms exiled to Babylon, the Samaritan population was not allowed to share in the rebuilding of the temple. Still holding to their own interpretation of the books of Moses, the Samaritans built their own temple on their own mountain. Mount Gerizim, which is why the Samaritan woman at the well said to Jesus in John 4.20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, she's referring to Mount Gerizim, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Around 128 BC, when the Jewish leaders, the Maccabees, revolted against foreign domination and gained control of Palestine, they destroyed the Samaritan temple on Gerizim. They considered the Samaritan temple A heretical parody of the temple in Jerusalem. So we can understand that there is real animosity between Jews and Samaritans. It's it's the animosity that serves for the basis of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Jews despise Samaritans. Samaritans hate Jews. Why would a Samaritan help a Jew? Jesus rejected that ethnic divide. He rejected it theoretically through this parable by defining the Samaritan as the good neighbor. You know, who's my neighbor? The Samaritan. And then he went further, rejecting the divide with his own actions when he chose to travel through Samaria and invited a Samaritan woman and then her whole village to receive salvation through belief in him. Jesus has already set the foundation. Now, after the death of Jesus, Philip comes back to the region where Jesus saw a ripe harvest field. But would these Samaritans accept Philip's message? Would the harvest field still be ripe for Philip? There there are some cultural bridges to work from. There is a shared recognition of the books of Moses. There is a shared expectation of a Jewish Messiah. There is shared opposition against the hierarchy in Jerusalem. So the the violence of the Jewish leaders against the Christians um, kind of put them in the same camp with the Samaritans. But there's also a significant religious divide, an ethnic divide, a historical divide that's been developed in a spirit of distrust. So the potential cultural bridges that exist between Samaritans and Jews, you know, wh- why you think the gospel might be able to go into Samaria, it doesn't guarantee a way across a divide that's been widened by centuries of animosity. But when you add up all the human reasons people might receive the gospel and all the reasons people might reject the gospel, you just can't know what the Holy Spirit is going to do until the Holy Spirit does it. In this mission to Samaria, God acts powerfully. The ember kicked out from Jerusalem catches the soil on fire. Samaritans wake up from the darkness and see Jesus. Now in the case of Israel, the miraculous signs of Jesus were prophesied ahead of time and worked to affirm that he was who he claimed to be. Isaiah had said the Messiah would heal the lame and restore sight to the blind. Jesus healed the lame and restored sight to the blind. The signs affirmed his claims as Messiah. God continued to empower the apostles and other members of the early church like Stephen and Philip to do similar miracles as Jesus did in order to affirm the message they proclaimed about Jesus. In Samaria, the power of the miracles also work against the spiritual powers recognized by the Samaritans in their unorthodox worship. Simon was doing some kind of power, and now the people have a a real reason to look away from Simon towards something new because there, there's another power at play. A power struggle ensues, similar to the power struggle between Moses and the magicians of Egypt. Simon is recognized as as being great in the use of the magical arts. He has astonished crowds of people. He claimed to be someone great. And we don't know the specifics of his spiritual claims, but the people connect his magical powers with their belief in God and they've mixed together first-century spiritualism with the books of Moses, and they call Simon the great power of God. He's an imposter who has himself endorsed this false belief that his power comes from God. And we we don't see a direct power encounter like with Moses and and the Egyptians, where they they both do this series of miracles. Um, We do see two choices. There is the power of Simon's magic, And then there's the power of Philip's miracles. The power of the Holy Spirit working through Philip proves more convincing to the Samaritans, leading many to believe in the message preached by Philip. And as they place their faith in Jesus Christ, Philip baptizes them. Even Simon the Magician believes and is baptized. The text says he's amazed by the miracles Philip performs, which implies to me that he has no idea how to do what Philip does. What others have sensed, Simon knows to be true. His magic is nowhere near the same thing as Philip's miracles. Simon's wonder at the miracles Philip performs suggests that his magic was not true spiritual power, but tricks he performed to pretend to be somebody great. And he seemed to be very good at it, You know, good enough to know true power when he sees it. And so Simon believes another life has changed. But changed how much? We'll have some questions in a minute about Simon when Peter comes. But Philip was willing to include Simon based on his own testimony of faith. And Philip's baptism of the Samaritans expresses his full acceptance of their new birth in Christ. Philip believes that Samaritans are genuinely believing. And that that's the implication of his baptizing them. He wouldn't baptize them if, if he didn't believe there was true belief going on. The full implication is not yet clear to leaders in Jerusalem. What what does this mean for the gospel going out, and what does it mean for the requirements of the Old Covenant? Um, This is more of a half-step towards the Gentiles, not a full step. The Samaritans have Jewish blood. The Samaritans practice the laws of Moses, even if they have temple worship confused. The Samaritans are going to be eating kosher, so that's that's not even going to be brought into question, is this okay or is this not okay? Samaritans had come to faith through Jesus. We know Jesus approves. Samaritans speak a similar language and have a shared history. So we may be a little surprised as Jewish Christians by the inclusion of Samaritans as true members of the new covenant people of God, but we're not too surprised. We can fit this into our theological worldview. Still, the apostles want to see for themselves this awakening of Samaritans. So Peter and John make the trip down from Jerusalem, and Peter affirms As an apostle, the work that God is is doing, that affirmation of the work in Samaria is recorded in Acts 8, 14-24. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourself so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. We use different words and phrases when referring to the moment of new birth when a person believes. You know, we might say she placed her faith in Jesus, or he believed, or he received Jesus. Here, Luke says Samaria had received the word of God. You know, that's the phrase he uses, and that was the phrase he used when writing about Pentecost. Those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls, Acts 2.41. He uses the same phrase referring later to Cornelius' household. Gentiles receive the word, Acts 11.1. The Bereans also will receive the word with great eagerness, Acts 17.11. In this sense, receiving the word about Jesus is the same as receiving Jesus or believing in Jesus. Truth faith requires an, an assent to truth content. There's a message being delivered that we believe. Luke's use of the phrase at Pentecost, here referring to Samaritans, and in Acts 11 referring to Gentiles, seems intentional that he's using the same phrase each time on purpose. The gospel spreads to individuals. Individuals must believe in Jesus and receive forgiveness for their specific sins and experience new life in Christ. When when we say that the gospel spreads to a group, we mean that individuals in that group have come to faith. But we can then say that it it spreads to groups. We just recognize what we mean by that. The Jews at Pentecost received the word. The emphasis there in Acts 2 was more clearly individual, but it also applied to the group. The Jews of Jerusalem received the word of truth about Jesus. That doesn't mean all the Jews of Jerusalem. It's not the whole group, but it means a group of Jews in Jerusalem. Luke's comment, Samaria had received the word of God, emphasizes the group. He doesn't say that Samaritans receive the word of God, but Samaria, the place, receives the word of God. And this is a significant step forward in the spread of the gospel. We've moved from uh, Jews in Judea now to individuals, Samaritans in Samaria. A significant number of individual Samaritans have acknowledged the truth of the gospel so that we can say Samaria, the place, the people have received the word. It doesn't mean all Samaritans. We, we know that. It means the gospel has crossed a significant cultural bridge. The same language will be used when the members of Cornelius' household believe to emphasize the crossing of another cultural bridge to reach Gentiles. The Gentiles will receive the word. In all three examples, the reception of the gospel succeeds against human explanation. We just wouldn't expect it. The Jerusalem Jews at Pentecost are accused by Peter of murdering the Messiah. That's part of his message. And yet, instead of stoning Peter, they receive the word and repent, 3,000 of them. The Samaritans are told, a Jewish Messiah has come. The Jews are right in their worship of Yahweh. The Samaritans receive the word of God, even though it affirms the Jews, not themselves, to truly be God's old covenant people. Then this Roman centurion is told that this inconsequential people on the edge of the Roman empire happened to be God's chosen ones, and that the true king of creation comes from them, but he was crucified like a criminal on a Roman cross. Humanly speaking, it is almost inconceivable that a Roman military officer would accept such a message. And yet, he and his household receive, that word as true. You never really know what the Holy Spirit is going to do until the Holy Spirit does it. So receiving the word of God, as, as Luke has used it, means a, a yielding of your own worldview to the gospel an accepting of what Scripture says about who God truly is, who Jesus truly is, and who you truly are. Samaritans received the word of God. Peter and John came to see for themselves, and they found something curious. The Samaritans had believed and had been baptized by Philip, but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. The prophecy of Joel about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was directed to Jews, so maybe the Samaritans aren't supposed to receive the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't seem to be the assumption here. Peter and John seem to have no problem believing that the prophecy applied to the Samaritans as well, maybe because of their shared Jewish heritage. I don't know, but Peter and John pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Luke writes, For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. The order here seems similar to what we saw at Pentecost. The group of 70 praying in the upper room, had all believed in Jesus as Messiah, and yet they had to wait for some time after belief before the Holy Spirit was poured onto them as believers. These Samaritans have also already believed. Philip affirmed their profession of faith by baptizing them, and then later, after Peter and John had come, they received the Holy Spirit. The text doesn't say specifically that they spoke in tongues when they received the Holy Spirit, but it would make sense for the apostles to expect the receiving of the Holy Spirit in Samaria to be the same as the outpouring they received at Pentecost. Also, Simon's recognition that the laying on of hands brings about the reception of the Holy Spirit suggests that there was some kind of spiritual manifestation associated with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Simon would not have likely been impressed by Peter laying his hands on a Samaritan believer and then simply declaring him filled with the Holy Spirit by faith without there being any kind of sign. Speaking in tongues, like at Pentecost, is the best option for a kind of visible manifestation of the Spirit that would have affirmed to the apostles that the Samaritans had indeed received the Spirit and would have impressed Simon that something powerful had just happened. So even though the text doesn't say they, they spoke in tongues when they received the Spirit, I think it's, it's quite valid to assume that they did. Now we have again that challenging question of biblical narrative, how much of this is a description of a special occurrence that occurred at a particular time and place, and how much of it is prescriptive for us? Like, what about this experience should we understand as normative to our own Christian experience? Does the receiving of the Holy Spirit normally come after a person believes, like at Pentecost, like with these Samaritans? Should we always expect speaking in tongues to accompany the receiving of the Holy Spirit, like at Pentecost, and probably like here in Samaria? What about the laying on of hands by the apostles? Is that necessary for the receiving of the Holy Spirit? And we're still not ready to answer those questions, not, not ready to interpret what about the experience of receiving the Holy Spirit was descriptive and what was prescriptive. And we're not ready because we have one more significant example we need to get to so that we can do a good job of considering this question in the broader context of Acts. And that example is going to be in chapter 11, with the conversion of Cornelius and his household and their reception of the Holy Spirit. So when we get there, we'll address these questions. What I'd like to discuss now with this passage is Simon's response to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit as a representative of the unorthodox spirituality in Samaria. And in our day, Simon is probably a pretty good mix of 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 kind of our, our secular culture that's that's influenced by Christianity, but it's influenced by a lot of other spiritual views, and it, it kind of comes up with this, this mixed-up worldview of what spirituality truly is. Simon views the spiritual power of the apostles as real magic. And they've discovered the secret to harnessing spiritual power. Simon wants to harness spiritual power. He offers to pay for the secret, and that offer is offensive for multiple reasons. First, he interprets the Holy Spirit as a power source that human beings can manipulate. This is such a, such a wrong and yet normal view of Christianity, normal view of religion, that we do religion in order to manipulate God to get him on our side or to get him to bless our lives. So not only is this a wrong view that's really common in society, it's, it's a danger for all Christians. We are tempted to think our prayers, our faith, our religious intensity, our good behavior, you know, some, some mix of that is a formula that can cause the Spirit to act according to our desires. But no matter how much we pray, or how sincere we are in our prayer, or how intensely we cry out, or, or how good we offer up praise, the Spirit is living God. He is not manipulated. He acts according to His will in harmony with the will of the Father and the Son. The right way to relate to God and in relationship to the Holy Spirit is is relational. Uh, we make requests to God as sons and daughters, not, not manipulating him, but trusting him to act with a yes or a no or a maybe. He is in charge. He is Father. There is no special formula of prayer or ritual or behavior to control God and the work of the Holy Spirit. If we think we found it, we're going down the wrong road. So that's offensive. You don't manipulate the spirit, Simon. Second, Simon's offer offends by misinterpreting the motives of the apostles as though money could move them to grant him this ability, even if they somehow could. And Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Simon understood religion as a source of spiritual power that could be useful for his life. And we can all be tempted to see Christianity as primarily about providing us the life we want according to our own terms. Now, often that's how people come to Christ. God reaches into our real world of need. And he provides for us, just like he'd been providing for people in Jerusalem. He provided for the widows. Maybe he protects you financially or saves your marriage or saves you from a bad relationship before marriage. Or maybe he gives you true friends or gets you on the right track with your studies or in your job. Maybe he helps you to grow up. And maybe he he, he somehow entered into the pressing need of your life and granted you favor. And that favor may have caused you to turn in true faith to Jesus. And, but we also we also easily internalize the wrong message that religion is primarily about fixing all the problems in our life, and because that's what happened. I, I was in trouble. God came and saved me. So that that's what this Christianity is about. It's about getting my life together. I get on side with God, and and God fixes things. Instead of understanding Christian religion as it truly is, which is primarily about coming into right relationship with God, uh, worshiping him, and through that relationship, becoming the person that God has created you to be, that you might truly uh, reflect his image. We actually need ongoing problems in our life to to help form our character, to help us focus on God and faith, to help us to truly be Christ-like. God's main plan is not to, to get our whole life together and smooth out. God is, is much more about our relationship with him and who we are becoming. Simon may have professed faith in Jesus Christ, but his character and his worldview are still very much defined by his culture and his old self. He, he has spent very little time with Jesus yet. And he is tempted to regard the power of God as something he can harness for his life. You know, He can gain prestige or money uh, if, if he can understand the right ruch, ritual or, or prayer or behavior that the apostles are using to manipulate the Holy Spirit. He misunderstands relationship with God, and he misunderstands the character of the disciples, you know, which means he also has a very wrong understanding of Christian ministry. He sees ministry for God as a way to regain the prestige and income he lost when he gave up the magic business to follow Jesus. And it must have been a heady thing to to be known as the Great One of God. You know, He followed everyone else when a, a new amazing source of power showed up, but the old life still holds temptation. His old life was about spiritual power and recognition and money, and that still got a grip on him. A year ago, I was at a conference, and a student asked me what I thought about Kanye West's Sunday service. I want to be careful because i I believe that famous people can come to know Jesus truly. But my response was, "That's a terrible position he's putting himself in, and for Christian leaders around him to encourage him is terribly irresponsible. I believe in changed lives. And I believe that change lives happen in a moment. I also believe that character changes over time. Power, wealth, and influence exert significant control over human beings, and we see this over and over when famous people come to faith in Christ, and then Christians want to use their witness, and we put them up into positions of of leadership before they've had any chance to develop. You know, sports stars, musicians, and actors—they might have been truly. Changed by Jesus, but now we're expecting them to model Christ like character and to speak from a biblical worldview without giving them any time to develop that character. And they're in a very, very difficult place to even develop character, being in the limelight of of power and influence and money. It's a terribly difficult situation they're being thrust into. If Kanye West's life has been changed by Jesus, the absolute last thing he needs to be doing is jumping into leading a, a Christian worship spectacle. And, and he just for his own sake, he needs to stop. But also for the sake of the people he's influencing and, and that he's eventually going to, to hurt because he does not have the character of Christ yet. He's, he's not ready for this. Simon's desires are very much defined by who he was. Peter sees it, saying to him, Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven of you. The intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. What bitterness does Peter see in Simon? I assume he sees the bitterness of loss combined with the bitterness of jealousy. Simon had recognition and honor in his former life when he passed off his magic as real spiritual power. He gave that up when he placed his faith in Jesus. And we might, I should pause and, and ask a question that you might have. We, we might wonder, did he truly believe in Jesus? The story implies he did. He was baptized. In our study of John, however, we saw examples of people claiming to have believed and to begin to walk with Jesus, and yet they were believing in their own version of the Messiah, and they didn't really have saving faith in Jesus. So it's, it's not 100% that just because the text says he believed, we don't know what he believed. It seems to me to imply that he had true belief, um, but I'm okay leaving the question open here. I'm not sure it's essential to the story. because that, this, is, this is part of the story. When, when you're doing ministry and people are professing faith in Christ, uh, it's not clear yet who has truly believed and who has not truly believed, and you, you find out over time. And sometimes the ones who fall quickly actually will get back up and, and walk, that they were true believers who fell. Others, who seem to, they seem to carry on for a while, but it never really catches, and then it takes some time to find out they didn't really believe. What is essential is that Simon has made a profession of faith, and he's even been baptized. He's identified himself with the name Jesus. Falling into bitterness and bondage is possible for those who do not truly believe and possible for those who truly believe. So it's a warning to all of us. You know, we're excited about the newness of our relationship with God, about the offer of forgiveness and love and acceptance. We get excited by the story that makes sense and it gives us purpose. But our minds are not immediately renewed and our flesh is not immediately purified. We come to Christ with all kinds of wrong understanding. We come still broken, not yet fully healed. You know, we bring our old habits and values and temptations into our new relationship with Jesus. And we may be freed from some old habits immediately. There's no longer any draw for us. Others do, other desires might never fully go away. Either way, we need a lot of growth of character just to start becoming like Jesus, and that takes time. Simon might have initially lost the desire to become someone great. He gave it all up for Jesus. And when it was just Philip and everything was going on, but then Peter and John show up. And not only can they perform miracles like Philip did, but they can confer power to other people. They lay their hands on Samaritans, and Samaritans manifest tongues or gifts or whatever it was the display of the Holy Spirit power. As Simon watches the apostles' ministry, he discovers that the desire for power and recognition has not gone away after all. He becomes jealous of Philip and Peter and John. He wants what they have, but he can't get it, so he becomes bitter. He gets to the point where he's even willing to make an offer to pay for the ability to do the ministry the apostles are doing. And Peter describes this desire for a ministry that God has not granted as bondage. Simon wants the gifts and the ministry roles he sees in the leader's you know he had been a leader he had been an influencer why should he not be allowed to step into the top of christian ministry here in samaria in his jealousy in his jealousy he doesn't likely give thought to the long process that brought peter and john to where they are now you know their their whole journey with jesus over years is what made them fit for the ministry they're performing that journey and the specific calling of god and the specific gifting of God. Simon is fueled by old desires that are transferred into this new community. He can't appreciate his own place in the community. He wants what he is in no shape to receive. You know, his desire has him in bondage to bitterness. And that's an experience at some level, some level we can all identify with. You know, who have you wanted to be? What have you wanted to do? What have you wanted to do for God? When you stopped trusting God to provide you with that opportunity, what means did you use in your own flesh to try and obtain that which you were not given by God? And when you were not able to obtain it, when did you become bitter or jealous or upset with God or when did you just give up or when did you become upset with the people that God chose instead of you? It's a hard thing to want to be who we are not, and yet trust God with who we are. Peter tells Simon to pray that God would forgive him the intention of his heart. I'm not sure what to make of Simon's response. He answered, pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. I think God wanted repentance directly from Simon. He wanted to hear from Simon. And yet sometimes when we are caught up in the temptation of our old way of seeing and doing, the most we can bring ourselves to do is ask for help. If Simon had heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira, his request for prayer from Peter might take on a more urgent tone. You know, He had set himself forward as a Samaritan example of hypocritical leadership. He is in danger. He wanted to buy influence and, and give direction to the new Christian movement out of a hypocritical heart. Fear of God expressed in a request for prayer from Peter might be exactly the right way to respond. Simon becomes a warning to us, and let's end with this. If We come to Christ with a lot of baggage. We might get caught up in the immediate excitement of new birth and all the change that happens right away, such that we don't recognize how much growth still lies ahead. Simon is a warning to, to trust God with our formation and with the ministry and opportunities he has for us. Simon is also a warning to give others time to grow without hurrying them into ministry positions beyond their capabilities. You know, Paying attention, not so much uh, to young leaders, to their talent or their social ability or their influence, but paying a lot more attention to the Christ-likeness of their character. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, Or if you'd like to see some overview charts that go along with our study of the book of Acts, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, and the Gospel of John.